Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Laura Korkulinen, an innovation consultant based out of Lisbon, founder of Give a Shit, which uh, she started 13 years ago, also the curator of Impulse Sessions for Ironhack and a researcher and PhD candidate at IADE Creative University in um, in Lisbon. So Laura, thanks for coming on. appreciate uh, you taking the time. Would you mind telling us how you got interested in anthropology? Thank you, Matt, for inviting me to share my story. And yeah, I'm pleased to be here and happy to share my story to inspire people listening this. And I hope many more anthropologists get into the business field and yeah, applied field. So I was a student of anthropology uh, in Ljubljana University. What was awesome that in, I believe it was in second year, I was having an applied anthropology classes already in my bachelor's studies. So that was something that kind of raised my curiosity right away. And uh, so I was like, wow, we can do something with this. So I would say it comes from personal and professional passion that as a student, I was like really passionate about being in the field, studying with community and so on. But then there was this personal passion on hands-on practice because I was learning so much things and researching as a student, but later on starting to understand, so what I do with this information? So my question to professors will always be, so what do we do with this? So kind of started, uh, I would say like exploratory curious uh, journey of a young student, which was from the beginning on understanding uh, importance and precious information as useful for many out there. And yeah, there my engagement started. And yes. Oh, I was just going to ask, why do you think um, you had those applied classes? Like, was there one particular professor who was interested in that? I mean, it's pretty unusual to have that at, at that level. That's true. And I was lucky enough to study at University in Ljubljana, where Dan Kudiet, I believe many of who are following applied anthropology know him, was my professor. And uh, he was giving applied anthropology classes. Um, and then also other professors, my mentor, Raiko Murshic, and even if class was not called applied anthropology, it was um, there was a lot of applied work and applied stories from medical anthropology field works we were doing that they were like really having applied connotation and so on. So it was a uh, yeah, it was curious, but also I believe the the urgency from personal what professor were bringing into the field, but also yeah, for some collective reasons, Slovenia was quite in front already in that time. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, 
you had this opportunity that many people didn't, um, but there's obviously many ways that you can practice. Um, you know, historically, you know, practicing may have still been less focused on business and innovation. And so, again, what kind of helped you get into that particular space? So, yeah, I need to go one step back from the conversation we had and jump into what you said from there, from a student life, because it started there. So I believe it was in my third years. Uh, in that time, it was like a, a master degree integrated, uh, like in the bachelor or like five year study. And in that third year, my seminar was researching one abandoned area in the city where I come from in Slovenia. And uh, I was really like studying the folklore and the memory of that place and understanding what was there before and like doing ethnography in the field. And all that information was so precious to me that I said, wow, we need to do something with this pl uh, place because uh, in the past it was like a swamp and people would um, relate to it as something beautiful. But in that time it was a marginalized area when I was studying it. So what did I do? I knocked on the door of the city hall, <laughs> a young student, and I said, let's do something with it. And they had some open calls outside that we could uh, apply for, like, uh, yeah, in that time I would say peanuts, but it was very useful because of course it was helpful and, and it kept me even more motivated. So I invited several friends to collaborate and we brought together uh, a very interesting uh, format program. First, uh, first it was a festival. It was like a, it was called Akultur. It's academic culture and nature. So uh, connecting the academic knowledge with the cultural needs, bringing together the art, artivism, art and activism side, and also nature uh, correspondence. So that that was in two thousand eight. And one year later from this research, I was um, from this study, from this uh, abandoned area in the town, I was uh, creating like an acupuncture points in the city, which should be activated uh, for the for the program, for the well-being of the citizens uh, to, to bring further like a well-being, the engagement and so on, in integration. So in that time, that was a second project in 2009. It was called Zabnek, Spatial Textbook. And in that time, the festival, it was for kids and youngsters and families, very applied, multi-sensorial uh, public space intervention. It was also a festival. And what was awesome, it was really an interdisciplinary work because I was collaborating with architects, designers, uh, engineers. There were uh, farmers from, from that area. So like everyone who was contributing to this uh, leveraging the importance of, of uh, natural uh, ecosystem in the area, the ecology, it was invited to be part of it. And we were also awarded a sustainability award in that time. So why I'm going back like from this study approach to, to, to uh, collaboration with the city hall and different stakeholders, it's because in that time I didn't understand that was a business anthropology. But if I go back now, it was the first time when I was raising funds, getting sponsorships, uh, organizing project, managing uh, uh, a project, uh, collaborating with many people. So yeah, that was the first moment and momentum of a turning point when I understood what is applied anthropology. And that's also useful for business because people were ready to give us some funds to create that kind of program. But everything came from a, from a study-based uh, program. So that was uh, the first uh, step. And um, 
then I can continue to, to how it evolved. In 2011, I went to study to Barcelona. I did uh, Erasmus there. To, uh, sorry, not 2000, 2009 and 2010 after that festival. And uh, I was, uh, by my surprise, and I believe surprise of many, uh, attracted to study uh, public toilets. And, and that was also with one, I would say, very bizarre situation. And as anthropologist, I wouldn't say it's so bizarre for us, but for many other, it's like, what are you speaking about? So urination of, of uh, streets really brought me to the point that I start to be very annoyed about it because I was living in Raval in city center. And I was like, I should do a seminar around it. So I proposed it to do it as a school project at the university and said, why you would study something like that? So they actually refuse it. So it was not a, a project at the faculty, but it was a moment when I really, it, I, when I name it first time, I said, I need to give a shit about it. I, I, this is like, even it, like a joke, but uh, it was like, people are not speaking about this. This a bit looks, excuse my expression as an anthropologist, but in that time I would say barbarian. I was like, why people are peeing under my window? I don't get it. But from the, the long story short brought me to found later on Project Give a Shit, which actually became a consulting agency. And uh, speaking to, to people out there, um, I believe we are already curious, curious because we are researchers, but allow your curiosity to really be open to the level to be surprised where may magic come true and where may business opportunities come true. Because the truth is uh, our research uh, has a lot of knowledge and information for needs of people, needs of environment, community, and so on. But there is also business potentials in our information. So it's not only looking what business needs, it's what we are discovering that business should do. <laughs> so my approach was more from that side. So this was the beginning of the journey. And yeah, uh, there is a, a lot more what's happening right now. So uh, thanks for sharing that. Just to go back briefly, you know, I, I find it interesting that you were uh, organizing, you know, large scale events in terms of like the festival, because while we certainly develop project management skills when conducting, you know, research in the field, the leap from that to organizing large scale events um, is still not, you know, completely, you know, a linear path maybe, right? It's, I mean, the skills are there to do it, but it's not like we're being trained in, in organizing any of that. So were you always involved in organizing or did you just have the, the desire to do this? I mean, what, what, what was the catalyst there? I think the main catalyst for me is always passion and purpose. So I was not trained in, in project management or, or knowing what to do with uh, that uh, scale of events at the beginning. But it, it came really as an like imagining it first and just going with it, with the flow. So um, of course it brought a lot of pains on the, on the way because I, it's not only sleepless night, I almost, even if I was young in that time, I didn't know what it means burnout, but I was working on no budget all days for probably 13 to 14 months to bring that project, to bring that two projects uh, together. But what I learned that asking and sharing and collaborating is the only way to do it. So my, my learning was more, my catalyzer was like, okay, I'm in need of help, so I will ask for help. 
So I was, I would say, also lucky in one side that I had amazing friends who would jump in and who would also interesting in the topic of ecology and, and bridging the gaps between uh, scientific knowledge uh, with applied results and so on. So that was a kind of natural flow. It was not something I was trained in. And I think a lot of times we don't assume positions or, or work because we think we should know how to do it and we should know how things should be. But the emerging, the also emergent theory, you know, it's like it, what we can, we can learn on the ways what's going to emerge. So kind of learning with information with people. And of course I did get, I, I can confess, I, of course I did get some, I even remember like a small book of project management. I think it's from Harvard Business or something, but I honestly never get to read it totally. I was just like, oh, what I should be doing? Oh, I'm doing it kind of. And so it's like uh, ongoing uh, work in progress and learning in progress. And so what did that experience teach you? Um, you know, aside from, we we already mentioned project management, but you also mentioned there was, you know, you needed to ask, right? And you need to raise funds. So what, what were the big takeaways after you did that? Um, yeah, I would say like first starting from like this personal position and not so much from, from, from work, like from hands uh, on uh, place, it's truly protecting the knowledge we have. Um, because in that time, I was very knowledgeable about the topic and about the area. And I was also learning with architects on the infrastructural side outside of my research uh, and ethnography results. But I never understood that that information should be protected because I'm really about open sourcing and, and sharing and bringing uh, information forward for betterment of the world. But what happened that uh, it's a, uh, yeah, information was later on used not in the in the way I was expected by uh, municipality, and I was never acknowledged for that. And it's not only my personal, uh, I would say, uh, like uh, ego journey, like some would think. It's truly about mm, bringing information which is uh, having a, a scientific. Uh, how to say, having scientific results which were collected together with people, they need to be acknowledged as such. They cannot just be brought together as some results in some format that is not improving life of people. And that's what happened in one point, because after the project we made, that area was revitalized, so they, they made architectural intervention to bring more life in it. Uh, so they, they brought some furniture, public furniture in it, and so it, so on. But actually, it was nothing of what was uh, requested of people and what research was showing. So that was a bit, I would say, a pain through the journey. That's my personal gain. Um, and I'm not, when I say protecting, it's not hiding information. It's just knowing how to negotiate and how to speak in business when we are delivering information and uh, NDAs and so on. And uh, another learning takeaway was uh, truly uh, that yeah, there is business open to to look into important informations which are happening out there, like uh, research results which I was presenting and uh, wanting to uh, engage inside of a festival, which was also helping uh, to the advertisement of companies because they they had a field where they could showcase. Oh, we have some ecological project products. So that was let's say. In 2008 was the first project, 2009 was the other one. Uh, 
So 12 years ago, 13 years ago, this was something new in that area of the Slovenia. So it was kind of matching the gaps. Oh, you can showcase your products here and we can give you the space and you give us some sponsorship. So learning was, yeah, don't be afraid and, and, and ask for help and knock on unknown doors. Even if you don't have answers all the time, someone will answer. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was a big part of the journey. And also learning that people are happy to help when we knock on the right door, uh, speaking the right stories. Even if I didn't speak business language, they understood the potential because I was speaking the language of heart and language of people. So that was uh, something that was interesting to them. So let's use that as a jumping off point to talk about the Give a Shit project. So, you know, that from the outside, you know, it sounds like that was a harder sell. You said that, you know, the faculty at the time weren't interested. Did you find that to be the case also with the municipality and, you know, local business owners or, you know, how did, how did that process develop and what did you have to do to maybe, you know, convince people of the value of that? Uh, yeah, great question, Matt, because I think it's not, uh, it's not a coincidence that this name is kind of striking everyone at first. So giving a shit had its own, uh, give a shit and giving a shit had its own journey on, on the way of my career. Because yes, one first time I knocked uh, onto the company door, I remember it was, I think in 2013 uh, of Roca uh, in Lisbon. Roca, it's a global bathroom space company and they have very luxury products and objects and they are, uh, developing quite in, in innovative projects, uh, products and projects. And when I knocked in their door talking about give a shit, they were like, like uh, you could see in their faces that it was a bit uncomfortable. So for me, it was first time that I understood, wow, this is maybe not so easy as I thought, or like maybe it is awkward. Even at the beginning, of course, the intention of the project itself, uh, it came from this rebellion side, speaking up, about taboos and speaking out what needs to uh, be done, the shit that we really need to take care of and we are not looking at, uh, to the level that I understood that, yeah, for companies it was not something easy to acknowledge at first until the, until the phone call that I had uh, from one company who said, we really want to work with you, but we cannot have give a shit there. So that was a, a point that, that, that was painful and also brought a lot of question to me, how I should position myself on the market, who I am, what I'm bringing forward as, as a consultant, but as a founder of a, of a give a shit. Until the point that I understood that my passion and my quality of work it's not compromised uh, behind the name of give a shit. It's actually stronger. Why? Because Give a shit happened and started, uh, as I said, in Barcelona, based on research results uh, that they were lacking, lack of public toilets in uh, public spaces around the world in bigger cities. And it started from this perspective of privatization of public space, looking into infrastructure of the city and so on and so on. Accessibility, safety until the point that it start to really understand when I start to understand personally that we are speaking of, of huge environmental questions, water, uh, water consumption, we, we flush down the drain in, in Europe, 
in most of Western flushing system of toilets between three to seven liters of drinkable, drinkable purified water, which is transported from very far. Uh, so it has distribution costs, wastewater treatment costs, a lot of energy consumptions or also related to it. On the other side, human excrements have huge potential for, for reusage and so on. So what I understood um, that when I founded that project, I said, no, this is serious. This is not a joke. We are not just hippies talking shit. We are, we are, <laughs> we are like I was alone at the beginning and then start to collaborate with many enthusiasts, artists, engineers, architects, and so on along the way, designers, especially. And I started to understand, no, we are serious people, but we take things seriously because of this, we speak that we need to give a shit. And uh, so this taboo part uh, came to the level that companies, when I start to approach from more business perspective, when I was not fearing my own name and connotation behind it, when I brought research results further, when I brought numbers further, when I brought needs of people further, when I brought needs of environment further, they start to take me seriously. And I said, they didn't mention give a shit, but they start to understand that the give a shit has a true principles, values, which are contributing, not just to the environment, but possibly also to their business. And uh, in a larger scale, just to resume it, in this moment, after many years working uh, on toilet and water topic, I really understand that it's about this, that give a shit is truly about this systemic vision of ecosystem that we live in, and that we cannot separate toilets and water from all the system that we live in. So in this moment, we are doing many different things from educational, uh, not just campaigns, but also creating different sessions, integrating different stakeholders uh, and facilitating workshops. We can really, uh, which are contributing to engagement and innovation uh, solutions on, on the field. So you talked a little bit there about how you know, at first the name seemed to hold you back, but once you came loaded with, you know, more statistics and sort of, um, you know, backing as to why this is important, people listened. But I'm I'm curious to know, you know, given it's more of a taboo topic, what do you think was really convincing people? Was it the ecological aspect? Was it the financial aspect? I mean, I appreciate that it probably varies from place to place and maybe it's a little bit of everything, but is there... Is there one takeaway from that you, that you think really um, stands out that helped you sell it? Um, so, yeah, main question, very good point, Matt, because why, of course, when you talk to companies, when you, when you talk to clients, even if they, they have this social responsibility piece and environmental, I would say, consciousness, though we know a lot of time there is a lot of greenwashing in marketing, I, I I was lucky and happy to meet people who really care and they really want to do different in, in business. So the driver of responsibility environment was always strong and that was how we entered and that was how we established engagement and first projects. So it was through this and it was through, I would say, more like social campaigns and environmental campaigns, which were giving us some initial funds, project funds to do certain events. But later on, when I started to speak with bigger companies, as I mentioned, and, and also like one Slovenian smaller startup that is developing toilets and so on, it was really about numbers. It was, uh, I'm not myself, I don't do uh, numbers, but I do bring together calculations of what we spend in toilets, uh, what kind of consumption we have, 
in average, how many times we visit toilets in our ho households and so on. So when I brought uh, together some, some numbers from Lisbon scale, uh, Lisbon city scale, which is part of also my PhD research, that we are consuming, that toilets are the main water consumptions in, in uh, households, uh, between 23 to 27% of drinkable water that we use in homes. When I brought that to company, uh, and I said, okay, so we have a water crisis in Portugal just right now, uh, today, as we are speaking. And that was the first time in 2013 when I was bringing that further. And I was like, okay, if we are facing already now water crisis and all the predictions are taking us there. And then back in 2016, 17, we had a deep water, big water crisis in uh, South Africa facing day zero. That was a turning point for many companies I talked to or to the big company I talked to when they understood, okay, there is an opportunity because is, there is a need for water reduction, but it's also about water saving because we don't have it. It's not anymore a question, uh, you want it or you don't want it. It's something that there is a realization because there is a market who is asking for it. And an important point, it's not only numbers. Numbers, of course, uh, anyone speaking business speaks numbers. But I would say for anthropologists, a huge advantage is that we really bring real life stories. So I was uh, going to meetings with, with prepared document, a small pitch, uh, talking uh, what research results were showing. But I would on the other side also say, okay, so there is a market. People are calling me. City Call is calling me. They want to implement ecological toilets in, in uh, new social housing buildings. But on the market, they cannot buy it in Portugal. So there is something wrong. So when you say this to a company, a huge billionaire worldwide global company, and they're like, okay, there is something missing. The same for public toilets. I brought something, it's a niche. It's, it's very hard to find it uh, at first, which was like ecological public toilets. Now in recent years, it's improving and so on. But like, it was more like bringing real life stories combined with some numbers, which for me, they were more like uh, looking into environmental uh, side of things. Got it. And the, uh, the other thing you had said in there previously was that you were collaborating with, you know, many stakeholders, you mentioned architects, designers, artists. So. Obviously, we spend a lot of time collaborating in the field, even if we don't always think of it that way. But we, you know, in our training also don't often, I guess many people don't don't necessarily collaborate with those kind of stakeholders um, in the design space. And so what did you learn from working around, you know, those uh, people trained in those skills and how does that relate to what you're doing today? Because I know you've, you know, you frame out what you're doing as design anthropology and you're in the innovation space. So was that a catalyst to sort of inform you of the value of design or were you already thinking about design? Okay. Very interesting. Why? Because I, I love uh, Matt. Uh, thank you for giving space for these conversations because a lot of times we, I would say we look for the information information outside. So design anthropology, what is it? Let me read about it. So what is environmental advocacy? Let me read about it. My journey, and I believe of many, when you really are driven by your passion, it's truly discovering what makes sense. 
So when I was collaborating with people, it was not so much I need to collaborate with designers. It was automatically how the language and conversation went. So, for example, I would give a presentation on toilets in, in one public space, like uh, in, in Lisbon, in, in several like galleries, open spaces, discussions. And mostly who would approach me to talk with, they were designers. So it was, I would say, kind of a, a magnetic field between the information and, and the career uh, opportunity. So in that time, if I go back to the two projects I was explaining shortly at the beginning, I, it, I was uh, collaborating with the architect, one architect and one designer because they were my friends. But also it's not only my friends in that time, the language, how we spoke and understood the information, it was just kind of obvious it came together. So in design anthropology, um, it, when I started to speak and understood, okay, there is like all these amazing humans out there doing design anthropology, I understood, wow, in 2008, seven, when I started the first part of the research in Slovenia and Murska Sobota, I did combine design anthropology. So for me, it was like coming out, design anthropology, why? Because anthropology brings this problem formulation field together. So you have a really holistic vision, systemic vision on, of a problem. And for a company, for a business setting, this is amazing. On the other side, why it's amazing? Because you don't you give them pain points, not just this is a pain point. You give them this holistic, they call it in design, customer user journey uh, pain point uh, from the research. From design perspective, when I started in this natural engagement with designers, I started to understand that, yes, they have methodologies which are very useful to apply these results. So they will say, okay, so let's, this is awesome. So let's discuss, we will do a brainstorm. And then I saw them drawing things like, okay, so let's, what comes first? What is the problem? Okay, well, here we are. So let's go to this ideation. So let's bring together some ideas. So I kind of, yeah, in the conversations, I also started to understand the operating mindset of design. But yeah, jumping between the personal and professional, because I believe they are never separated. Uh, my personal passion in one of my lectures brought me to, to know one very special man, Carlos Barbosa, who, who passed away some, some years ago. And he invited me to work in design field as an anthropologist. So I became a researcher at Yada. Yada is now... Uh, it's a creative university, but it's part of Universidad Europea. And as a research design uh, anthropologist, researcher on design at Design University, I started to understand, wow, this is just naturally matching. And then I entered the field of design more seriously. I started to study innovation and creativity. I was lecturing the lessons. I learned a lot with different kind of projects, uh, different kind of uh, individuals designers and then when i entered my phd in design i was like but how am i going to study phd in design if i don't know anything about design but the funny thing is that that's not true that that's again assumption because it's about this mental game of what design is what anthropology is and more and more fields are naturally merging so i understood that my skill sets that i had from research was already complementing the first part of the design where we, they call it uh, many times, empathizing, uh, empathy phase, which anyway, that I won't go like uh, to, to the details of my uh, thoughts of this, because I believe empathy is not something we, we are trained in, it's something we really learn along the way and we feel in and, and so on. So 
anthropologists listening, I know everyone is aware of this, but in saying this, this was obvious that it was very helpful for design field. And then a part of the Kibashit, I started to be invited to work in design projects as an innovation consultant in many different things, because it was obvious that anthropology skill sets, it's so useful and so awesome because it's, it's something just we need to bring it further. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I'm going with the, what, what is there? Yeah, no, no, that was good. And, you know, the thing that jumps out at me there though, is, um, you know, the way you describe what designers do, right. They start drawing, et cetera. Um, really what I think we're getting at there is intervention, right. And, and the, the, the desire to create change from what is learned. And while many people who listen to this podcast might work in UX and are essentially, you know, uh, or, or my, I'll just say work in business um, and maybe familiar with that. There are plenty of other people who are thinking of going in this path who haven't really had so much experience with thinking through interventions and change and maybe coming out of you know academic anthropology where we are you know, oftentimes seeking to understand, um, you know, the past, not necessarily think about the future. And so how was, you know, was rationalizing that ever a problem for you? Was it ever a, any kind of issue where you were worried about the change that you might implement is, you know, harmful or is maybe not, you know, the change that everybody wants to see? Yes, a uh, very good point because it was uh, the main turning point before pandemic. So I would say a bit before, maybe in 2018, 2017-18, I said, I'm done with this because I started with this. I mean, creating products and innovations which are not contributing to the well-being of all beings. I don't mean just people because... With UX, we still are mostly focusing on human-centered approach. A lot of times, human-centered solutions are improving lives of people, needs, creating well-being, but not taking in companies that I worked with, not taking in consideration and account uh, environmental needs. So for me, that was a turning point that uh, I decided, I remember I was like, because I, I worked in that time as a professor at university, but I also worked as a freelancer and I said, I'm not taking on any project again until it has really aligned with my values. Uh, the truth is that for everyone listening, it's not always easy to work in this, uh, I would say, uh, emerging pioneering fields because yes, it's not easy at the beginning you say to someone, I'm an anthropologist and people are like, what are you? Or what do you do exactly? Or what can you bring to me? Or why you're even applying for this job? Uh, it's truly the communication skill set that we need to learn and change how we approach to things. Uh, communication that it's bridging this academic knowledge to something useful where we really uh, are advocating for people, where we really are advocating for real needs. And for me, this uh, harmful side, which is most of the time invisible, was the question because it was not what I would bring from the research field because I was working, for example, one of the projects we were working on home appliances 
and we did a lot of ethnography like and we were traveling all the portugal and did a lot of research and had a lot of database also related to, to smart homes and smart appliances and so on and for me just start to be overwhelming the fact of um, wow this is amazing for people but what are we actually creating with it started to be frustrating for me so yeah there is a big gap i'm not saying that people shouldn't take on jobs which of course give them uh, personal success and personal satisfaction but the truth is that these ethical questions and, and values need to be addressed from the beginning on and i would maybe finish this question with um, we are also educators anthropologists uh, in one side we are fearing not having jobs on the other side I promise from all the collaboration I had, the most brilliant minds, most of the brilliant minds, they, they really have this open mindset, uh, anthropological mindset, anthropologists, not only, of course, I, I don't want to go like <laughs> to narrow down, but, and then we fear it that we don't have jobs. And I know it's difficult because I was also convener of a applied anthropology network for, for, for more than three years. Uh, in Europe, and we were working towards uh, uh, increasing employment for anthropologists and, and, and so on. But the answer, what I learned in all this journey is that we are, we need to educate people of the importance we bring to the field. We need to give the information that is right to the people. As you said, past is very important to understand. It's not only looking into the past, but bridging the past with the moment of now, uh, predicting predicting the future, of course, we cannot predict it, but like uh, we need to learn with the past. And, and this is important. We communicate in the right way. It's not something frozen in time. It's something that it's transmitting through time. And, and it's very beneficial for business to also not fail because 99% of innovation is still failing. So we need to do something with it. And we have all the skill, skill sets to do, to do this. Yeah, well said. And so maybe to tie that to one of your other initiatives. So you're running these impulse sessions, um, you know, which is helping to kind of raise awareness and spread the word, you can maybe say. So what are you trying to do with that exactly? And uh, how do you see that fitting into this sort of larger you know, mission of advocacy? Very uh, important part, I would say, as you met are doing also, because what you what we are doing here, it's a bit similar to what I'm uh, trying to do with these iMPulse sessions. So iMPulse sessions were initiated by, um, by me together with Ironhack. When I was collaborating with Ironhack, I, I gave, some, gave some classes. They are web development and UX research, UX and UI uh, school, uh, global school. And I said, it's not enough to work with human-centered approach. Let's do something on design by nature, let's do something about the life-centered uh, approach uh, to design. And they agreed. So with these sessions, I'm actually inviting beautiful minds, brilliant projects, individuals, companies, startups, enthusiasts, uh, who are having successful stories, uh, personal and pro from pro professional career, and who are uh, mainly uh, basing their work on life-centered approach. For the ones that they are not known with life-centered approach is this uh, ecosystem approach, it's planet-centered approach, where we are considering the nature as main stakeholder in our work, 
where we are bridging different gaps uh, of, uh, of course, we are not starting the project, we are doing just this uh, with environmental uh, projects, but in research, how we can also use this kind of methodology. So I invite people who can share that and I give a small, small brief introduction on the importance of it. But yeah, normally it's like a very easy conversations. And um, what is the most beautiful result by now? We had two sessions because we just started this, this year that uh, students uh, or like also experienced senior designers and so on who are changing the field into UX. Uh, it's very interesting because people are really showing a lot of enthusiasm to bridge this and, and to, to, to pass the future uh, research practice into something more inclusive towards also natural ecosystem. And that was, uh, yeah, it's beautiful. And let's see, it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress. Yeah, sounds great. Um, and I'll link, you know, send me a link and I'll, I'll include that um, for you know, anything that I can link to, whether it's past events or just some landing page. But if wanted, if everybody wanted to find you and learn more about your work, uh, where should they look you up? Okay, I would say uh, LinkedIn. It's always the most useful because it's personal and I'm really all about personal touch, uh, contact. You can just message me directly and connect with me and follow because I post all different initiatives that they are still not gathered on a website, as uh, as you might notice. Um, so then we have a give a shit, giveashitnow.org. It's our website from give a shit. Uh, where it's like, uh, I would say, quite generic work that we are showing there. We have a lot of a lot more going on, but uh, it's not updated. And then we have social media from Give a Shit on, on Instagram and uh, Facebook. And uh, we, we actually, we are soon going to search for one social media manager. So if someone is listening out there and wants to join the team, you can reach out to me. And uh, then... Um, yeah, that I would see that these are the main initiatives. I can also reveal something that is still uh, brewing in the pot, okay, but it's coming out very soon. Uh, I was um, I was challenged with one beautiful new project uh, that I'm actually uh, leading uh, part of sustainability and regeneration on on spatial innovation. So it's it's a it's a department that we are developing, which is going to work on spatial spatial and territorial innovation, uh, together with sustainability. So soon the website is going to be out. I cannot say more than that, but uh, on my LinkedIn you are going to be able to see all of that. Um, and uh, yeah, feel free to get in touch. And uh, thank you, Matt. Thank you very much Great. for. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Laura. Appreciate you sharing all that and. Um... Well, uh, I'll be looking for more information on the project. Sounds good. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. And good luck with your projects. And yeah, I'm happy to jump on a call or whatever if anyone finds my skills useful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, Visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.